Hello, Cachimbonas. I'm very excited to bring you the fourth episode of season five of Radio Cachimbona. Radio Cachimbona is an abolitionist podcast that is audio archiving state repression and migrant resistance in the southern Arizona borderlands. I cover leftist law and politics. And I thank you all for being here today. So on this episode, I interviewed Yesenia Portillo, who is a active member of CISPES, which is a organization that started in solidarity with Salvadoran people after Salvadorans put out a demand for solidarity from other countries during the civil war and its work that has continued on into the present day. And I was very honored to be able to talk with Yesenia, someone who is so knowledgeable about the region and its history. And we discussed Biden's plan for Central America. And so we broke down how the private-public partnerships proposed in Biden's plan do not address the root causes of migration, emphasize the history of Salvadorans advocating for themselves and calling on international solidarity, which, as I was telling you all earlier, resulted in the CISPES organization itself. CISPES stands for the Committee in Solidarity with the People of El Salvador, and we praised the radical roots of the delegation of CISPES that involved diaspora returning to El Salvador for political education purposes. So I wanted to also take this time to shout out the amazing patrons that have been supporting me for so long. Thank you to Cosmic Mistake, Josh, Adriana, Embus Figueroa, Marley Osma DeForest, PJ Yesenia Medrano, Pedro Rolon, Elizabeth Zambrano, Jamie Sinlao, Claudia Triana, Antonio Valenzuela, Hannah Matsunaga, Roberto Rivera, Willa Rowan, Rosario Walters, Denise, Shelby Larson, Giovanni Escrido Leal, Maria Zepeda, Maria Ocampo, Rebecca Hobbs, Roman Castellanos Monfil, Anna Huerta Alardin, and Joseph Falcon Freeman. I really appreciate you all. Some of you have been supporting me from the very beginning, and I appreciate you all so much. And just know that I don't take your support at all for granted, and it's really what fuels me and legitimately keeps me going in this podcasting. And I was super happy to look at my Spotify wrapped for podcasters this year and see that on Spotify, I've increased followers by 56% this year, which is huge. And the patrons are a huge part of me being able to put out such quality, good, consistent content. So thank you. Thank you to you all. Also, if you want to become a part of this amazing community of patrons and please please do really give whatever you want and can and you uh between five and ten dollars and you'll get access first access to the new lit reviews and all the back catalog of past lit reviews first access to new episodes actually the episode this is an episode that i recorded months ago that the patrons got first access to and there's some fun patron exclusive content as well <laughs> if you're a bravo tv fan for example you'll find some gems and another way to support non-monetarily because i know these times are rough you can also leave an apple podcast reading or review 
it really helps with visibility and helps on getting on those, you know, top podcast lists at the end of the year, for example. Having consistent ratings and reviews really helps with that. And you can also follow at Radio Cachimona on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Also, as I mentioned in my last episode intro, I have left the practice of law, praise Jesus, and I'm now writing about the law, talking shit about the law, which is kind of what I've always, it's always been my place, you know, where, where I've truly belonged. And so you can follow my writings on Twitter at Yvette Borja AZ. I just did a preview of the Supreme Court case, Patel v. Garland, which is a case that you all should definitely learn more about if you hadn't heard about it. So please follow along to read my stuff there. And I hope you all enjoy this episode. Today, I'm very excited to have Yesenia Portillo of CISPES to talk about the Biden administration's plan for Central America and how that relates to Bukele and his authoritarian moves on the ground in Salvador. But before we get into that, Yesi, how are you doing today? I'm doing, you know, I'm doing well. I got to take a little bit of a break recently and like actually unplug which was is usually kind of difficult for me given obviously you know and mm. um and mm-hmm. so kind of like plugging back in and preparing for the podcast even I was like oh my gosh I need to like put myself back in the angry mode of like how messed up everything is and yeah just really it's, it is really hard to unplug even just for a little bit um and I really feel like I got to do that this this past little break that I had um, I had a lot of friends and loved ones around me that were distracting me. So it was nice. So yeah, but I'm, I'm still a little bit rejuvenated. <laughs> mm. That's amazing. That's really beautiful. How are you? I'm okay. Oh man. I'm just suffering under the nonprofit industrial complex, <laughs> like all of us. <laughs> but let's not get into that. Let's talk yeah. about CSPES. Can you explain what CSPES is and what you all do as an organization. And wait, is CSPES a nonprofit officially, or is it? I thought of it as a movement, or is it not? Is it a nonprofit? It is. It does have a 501c3, and we have okay, chapters okay, okay. in different cities that are not right. Like, and the, are the chapters volunteers? Okay, okay, yeah, yes, for the most part, yeah, got mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. We're, yeah, we're a grassroots funded organization, so we don't get any foundation money or like government grant money it's just all through individual donors Mm, mm -hmm. so in that sense it's not like the traditional nonprofit where we are beholden to like foundations or government right do you all have a board that you are beholden to we do have a board that's made up of like community representatives and representatives from our different regions Mm -hmm. like folks that are chapter members and like so different Mm. representation from within the or within our network yeah Mm -hmm. like our support network so CSPIS 
has been criticized in the past for being comprised of mostly white people, but there has been a noticeable shift in leadership where Salvadorans themselves are taking the helm. So could you speak to that more? Yeah. And so just to kind of go back a little bit more, because we didn't edit org. Um, so CISPES is the Committee in Solidarity with the People of El Salvador, uh, and it's an international solidarity organization that was founded in 1980, and it formed part of the Central American Peace and Solidarity Movement, as it's known or was known then. And when like Salvadorans in the U.S. mobilized different civil society organizations, mm-hmm. religious and non-religious, to push back against U.S. financing of the Salvadoran military, particularly to push back against Reagan's narrative about revolutionary Salvadorans as some kind of like Cuban or Russian-backed communist conspiracy rather than what it was, which was a people fed up with over a century of U.S.-backed genocidal and repressive military Mm -hmm. dictatorship. Mm -hmm. Eventually, the Central American Peace and Solidarity Movement was -hmm. successful in pressuring the suspension Mm -hmm. of military aid and the Bush administration's um, support of UN peace, like the UN peace process without the military defeat of the guerrilleros, guerrilleras that had, they were like really intent on getting that military defeat. During the war, CISPAS was sending humanitarian aid to schools and clinics in the campo, organizing rapid response networks Mm -hmm. uh, when labor and student activists were being arrested or disappeared. Um, and then elections observing delegations for every election mm. since the war and accompanying ongoing struggles of the popular movement in El Salvador since the war, fighting against privatizations that have been continued to be pushed by the U.S. Embassy, mobilizing against CAFTA, um, the Central American Free Trade Agreement, accompanying the anti-mining struggle and the fight against water privatization more recently. And also, of course, like U.S. border military and ongoing imperialist policies in their current form. So that's like a little bit about CSPITH. And to your second question about the participation of white North Americans and Salvadorans themselves feeding in CSPITH. Mm-hmm. I think, well, it's also important to share that the involvement of white solidarity activists didn't come out of thin air and that it was a directive that internationalists we're receiving at the time from organized and politicized Salvadoran refugees mm. who organized U.S. solidarity activists in the explaining. So yeah, it was the urgency and organizing power of Salvadorans in the U.S. that built the Central American Peace and Solidarity Movement or like the Salvadoran arm of it. And their strategy mm. was to let people in the U.S. Mm-hmm. know what their tax dollars were funding, right? And to help them understand mm-hmm. um, the historical context of the conflict, because obviously the U.S government Reagan administration was lying to them and to mobilize them into action so they would Mm -hmm. um, post informational activities and invite like you know North Americans and joining CSPIS a CSPIS chapter was one of the responses that would be given to folks to North Americans many and maybe most of them white when they asked you know what can we do and they'll take even more spaces than what I do share their testimony, their, you know, their testimonials in order to con- counter that, that dominant narrative that the U.S. Mm-hmm. government was telling the U.S. public. So yeah, CSPES organized in chapters across the country during that time to c- carry out like big civil disobedience actions at consulates, shutting down streets when arenados were coming to town, dis- disruptions at the Pentagon, 
you know, big things like that as well. Um, and in the years following the peace accords, mm -hmm. as I was saying, like CSIS's work has shifted, but it's still kind of informed by mm -hmm. that similar legacy. I think kind of to your question about what it looks like to transition, I think that's an important question is like, what are the things that mm -hmm. build off of and what are the to share about what's happening in El Salvador? Mm -hmm. And like the first example I can personally speak to is from 2010 when CISPES hosted anti-mining activists during the campaign at the time to fight a, a Canadian mi mining corporation that was suing El Salvador mm. under CAFTA for not giving them the green light to mine gold. Mm -hmm. So that mm -hmm. struggle, of course... Could you break down CAFTA? Because you mentioned it earlier, but... And you mentioned it again. So can you just like break down what that is? It's essential. Uh, I believe it was 2005 that it was passed pretty much like overnight in the U.S. Congress because there was a lot of opposition to it. There was a global mass movement at this point against these kinds of free trade agreements that basically different countries entered into that privilege, that mm -hmm. privileged corporation, basically. So the impacts in El Salvador are that the way that it impacted CAFTA, the, the thing with CAFTA, which, and the, so the way that it impacted the mining struggle, the thing with, with that situation was interesting because it was actually a Canadian mining company and Canada isn't, doesn't fall under the Central American Free Trade Agreement, but they had a subsidy. They, they opened an office in Nevada in order <laughs> to sue the Salvadoran government for not authorizing the permits for them to exploit the gold. And, mm. and the thing that happened is that- They like, sued in, and where did they sue? What court? court? It's an international court that they, and this was like, yeah, this is like- Really? This was actually like a very, like one of the first times that this happened. What body adjudicates that? I remember the name of the court right now, but it was definitely in, in an international court. And I, like I said, it was the first time that a corporation really was suing a government in this way. Yeah. So, yeah. And, but basically, I think the one thing we're, we might be going off on a tangent here, but something that's important about, about that is that kind of the way that CAFTA works too, and, and talking about resistance to it, right? The reason why the Salvadoran government was not approving the permits to mine is because they had received so much pressure from organized social movements. And, and it's really remarkable the organizing power of communities in El Salvador against this because it started like at the local level too and mm -hmm. using radio actually like um, Radio Radio Victoria and Cabaña um, played a big role and they're like their national network and getting the word out about why this is bad and why we need to mobilize against it right and so and so then because the Salvadoran government had given them permits to ex explore for gold they had they were claiming and and maybe if they had been an actual you know north american co uh, company and not a canadian company maybe they would have had more grounds um because i think that was part of the reason why they ended up losing they were suing el salvador for a lot of money and but but so yeah CAFTA basically like mm. protects corporate interests and says like you have to like they have they have certain rights so they were saying that the salvadoran government was infringing on their right to make this money and also like ha had harmed them for like causing them to like spend money in 
and exploring for gold and then not letting them exploit. Wow. So yeah, that's, that's kind of going back in 2010, we hosted anti And then even recently, before the pandemic, we, we had a plan of bringing water defense activists to talk about the anti-privatization struggle, but we ended up doing that virtually. And, and you know, the anti-mining struggle, just to say, because it's like a really big mm. deal, culminated... The privatization of water. Sorry, I kind of went back and forth. But in 2010 is when we were doing the anti-mining struggle. The anti-water privatization struggle is mm-hmm. a current ongoing struggle in El Salvador right now. And I mean, but it's also a very mm-hmm. decades old mm-hmm. struggle mm-hmm. as well. Like when the last ARENA president was in office, Tony Saca... He was big on trying to push water privatization. He called it something mm-hmm. called it decentralization, but it was the same thing. And and there were mass, there was like mass mobilizing against mm-hmm. it. Uh, mm-hmm. They had just passed an anti-terrorism law at that time, which was also being pushed by the U.S. all over the world. And the first mm-hmm. people who were jailed under the anti-terrorism law were people <gasps> that were taking to the streets against his the water protection as well. Yeah, yeah. But so that's just to say that the current anti-water privatization struggle, which we should all really be paying attention to and accompanying is, is, is a long struggle as well. And, and the anti-mining struggle, you know, Salvadorans, again, remarkable organizers were able to achieve the world's first and I think still only national anti-mining ban. So metallic mining is not allowed in El Salvador because of their work. Right. Yeah. Right. And this is kind of why the Bitcoin thing is so alarming because mm-hmm. Bukele has said that because it's a very energy intensive a mechanism that's required to create this Bitcoin and to have you know, the Wi-Fi that's strong enough and infrastructure that's strong enough to be able to actually make these transactions in real time. And he's suggested mining volcanic energy. Yeah. And it's just, it seems to be, Daniel Varenga came on the podcast and talked about how that's kind of a regression from where Salvador is at now, which is a very actually progressive place in that it does have this law that specifically mm-hmm. prohibits this kind of insidious mining that the Canadians are trying to do in a country where the, the infrastructure is is lacking where like in the rural areas, people don't have access to Wi-Fi and the, there's those basic infrastructure issues. It's just kind of flooring to me that there would be a person who's trying to, you know, engage in like uh, mining volcanic thermal energy and, but then like not using that for basic needs, but for use, using that for this currency that only the very wealthy are going to use. Oh yeah. It's so, it's so outrageous. And I don't know the specifics right now about how, and I don't know if maybe you do, cost of living in El Salvador is going up a lot right now. And yeah. and, and mm-hmm. what I know for sure is like gas prices, fuel prices are going up. And and I'm mm-hmm. imagining that a lot of it has to do with like taxes, you know, like taxes are being raised on things. Mm-hmm. And because of like these massive loans. Well, also it's the dollar, the American dollar being the currency as well. It like makes the cost of living higher yeah uh, compared to like other countries in the region yeah but right what i mean with bukele in power in the last like year or two years like oh i see i see Mm -hmm. one of the things yeah because you know we know obviously he has like mass popular support because he's a populist but 
that's getting chipped away. Mm -hmm. Like that's not going to last forever as people realize what the actual impact of its policies are, you know, and, and one of the things that's happening that people are saying is that everything is more expensive. And I would imagine, and the reason I bring this up is because I imagine the same is true with, with energy, with electricity costs and energy, right? I, I guess we can go a little bit more into CAFTA Mm-hmm. And like, what is Kafka? I think w- what we've described it so far as is a, a free trade agreement. But you mentioned that Canada is not a party to it. So who is a party to it? It's Kafka DR. So it's the Central American Free Trade. It's like Kafka. I think also the Dominican Republic, um, but the Central American countries mm. and the U.S. And basically, it impacted the agricultural industry a lot in El Salvador. Same with NAFTA which was the North American Free Trade Agreement. Mm-hmm. So that was with Mexico, right? right. We know that in Mexico mm-hmm. that impacted corn, the corn industry, right? If I'm not mistaken. And it made it mm-hmm. so that corn producers in Mexico were displaced. They were massively displaced, you know? And it was after NAFTA was implemented that the immigration reforms that like led to mass deportations under Bill Clinton happened. So like these, they know that these policies are going to lead to mass displacement. And exactly. so when CAFTA was... Yeah. So when CAFTA was being proposed, people already knew what this meant. Right. And so it also impacted the agricultural industry in El Salvador and shifted the economy from one where Salvadorans are producing their own food to one where they're importing a lot of it because it provides right. subsidies to North to U.S. companies mm-hmm. to, to import beans, rice and like staple things gives advantages to transnational corporations and raises the cost of the products to the consumer in the the homeland and also like destroys their own market because it's cheaper companies to sell than it is for um for salvadoran producers yeah that's kind of the background of the salvadoran economy and now Biden has this plan for Central America where he's planning on giving aid, right? And you said that CSPS is currently pushing back on it. So can you explain what the critiques are of that plan? Yes. Sorry. And I think we kind of did go off on tangents. <laughs> so I, I know that we didn't, I didn't really answer your question yeah. too much about, about the shift in CSPS. And so I just wanted to kind of share just a little bit about that. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think I think okay. the last thing that we got at was that it's critical to pay attention to because there has been this shift. Yeah, and I, I think also to your point about like there has been work to center the involvement and leadership from the diaspora, and it was in 2010, which is what I was like sharing about before, in relation to that campaign that CISPIS hosted its first Radical Roots delegation to El Salvador, and there's been. And what that is, like, those are delegations that CSPES hosts that are only for Salvador to go to El Salvador also with social movement leaders in El Salvador, connect to the work. So, but yeah, it is still a multiracial, multi-ethnic organization, and we're c- continuing to struggle through what that means. But yeah, I think it's also, I shared a little bit about this, that it's really important to know that um, the solidarity movement since its founding has been something that has been the work of Salvadorans in the U.S., you know, and we are continuing the work of shifting the strategy away from a culture of mobilizing white folks. And at the same time, trying to recover that 
and center that legacy of, of Salvadoran and Central American activism. Yeah, I think that first point that you made about how, yes, there was a lot of white people who were organizing with CISPAS originally, and that is because there was a call directly from Salvadorans in the Salvador who asked for that. And so, you know, the origin of all of this has been Salvadorans organizing for themselves. And the Radical Roots Mm -hmm. delegation, I think, is really important because I don't know if you followed the controversy about this person, like how not to travel like a basic bitch is (laughs) those called out by sad girl Danny and (laughs) Daniel Veringa and a few other people because they were like, you know, trying to create these trips to El Salvador and they were like marketed as for the diaspora specifically, but kind of in like, in like a very problematic way as if like, oh, people from the diaspora are going to be scared to go back. So like, no worries. Like we can take you to your pueblo and we'll arrange private security in a private car for you, you know? And it's, um, yeah. And so the you know the that versus the radical roots which is this specifically like political entity that has these like political goals i think for diaspora mm-hmm. um in particularly in this context where CSPOS was previously led by white people white north americans i think this is super super critical yeah and also i think it, it's also important to say that it was actually salvadorans that were in CSPIS at the time in 2008 2009 that were already organizing in CSPIS that were writing proposals to like strategy proposals and debating putting them on the table to say that that's where the radical roots allegations actually came from was from Salvadorans already in CISPA saying we want to do this just just to say that like they're the ones that actually Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. created those proposals and and led the delegations as well. So now we get into Biden's plan. (laughs) Yeah (laughs) sounds good. Okay. So what are the critiques of it? Okay, so yeah, first and foremost, it's a plan that privileges corporate profits and and militarization of security in order to protect those profits. Um, So yeah, I think the major critique is that it's a mere continuation of decades upon decades of U.S. foreign policy that will end up doing the opposite of what it claims to do. So I don't, I think during the Alliance for Prosperity under Obama, which you know, Biden is like, pats himself on the back so much about, um, I don't know that. So the Alliance for Prosperity was in 2014. Well, 2015, following the, what's known now as the child migrant crisis at the time. And that the the Alliance for Prosperity was the response then. And it's, it's literally the same thing. Um, So it's, they, they make it, Biden, the Biden and Harris administration are making it sound like it's something different, but really it's not. It's a recycling. And I don't know that they were using this root causes word or or idea. I don't know that they were using the exact words of root causes, but they were saying the Alliance for Prosperity was supposed supposedly going to address the reason why people were fleeing, you know, and now they're they've taken to actually using right. these this term of root causes, which is actually like a progressive and even radical idea, right? And so yeah. they've just mm-hmm. co-opted. Getting to the root of being radical is. Yeah, so they've just co-opted this to, to sell the same thing that they sold 
under the Alliance for Prosperity, the Alliance for Prosperity was also ended up being like, I don't know, 65% military and security spending. And I don't, yeah, yeah. so like CSIS isn't fine, definitely not the only organization that's critiquing or the only group that's critiquing um, and raising concerns about this. And I think even during the campaign period, a good thing to look at is from Migrant Roots Media, they put out um, a report about it and, and CSPIS and other uh, allied groups also put out, you know, we, we sent a letter to the Biden administration delineating the, the problems with this, with this policy and how it's just gonna exacerbate the root causes. It claims to provide solutions to what they identify as the major drivers of migration and they name things like poverty, violence, insecurity, corruption, violence against women, LGBT, Black, Indigenous, right. and other yeah. marginalized groups. So it sounds good, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. When- well, I just never like I just never like the U.S. like talking about these things. Like talk- right, <laughs> like I, I'm just yeah, I'm just coming up from the perspective of someone who used to be deep, do deportation defense and was frequently mm. working with asylum seekers. And in doing that, you have to create this narrative about U.S. exceptionalism mm-hmm. and how there's no homophobia, no anti-blackness, no anti-indigeneity here. And it's mm-hmm. like, I mean, mm-hmm. let's let's relax on that one. <laughs> but that's a, that's like beyond this conversation. I just had to say that. I mean, no, it's it's very relevant. I just get irritated by it. It's frustrating. Yeah, I mean, it's like then then we're just gonna talk about like the whole international human rights apparatus, and that's why I wanted to ask you like what international court made this decision, and because. Like the root of these international entities is the U.S. and European nations post World War II suddenly deciding that they were going that they were the arbiters of morality and that it was on them to tell other to tell other you know formerly colonized to tell formerly mm. colonized countries when they're committing human rights atrocities and at the same time never once ever acknowledging their own atrocities right and so yeah and the purpose of it being intervention exactly yes like that that those things actually are a tool for intervention right exactly that's neocolonialism and it's exactly what's mm-hmm. happening now it's exactly what's happening with the biden plan for central america and and the unfortunate thing is that when i when i hear discussions that name like human rights abuses and corruption as the problems it raises a red flag for me. exactly same you corruption know. and say hmm, what caused that right <laughs> who destabilized right. the government and and what and like who is carrying out these human rights abuses for what purposes and with what money and with what weapons who's mm. financing all of that come on but so yeah when you look at the at the language the driving force behind the policy is this um corporate profit like you know, securing corporate profit through private public partnership are a big thing, big, big thing. And this mm. is something that even like a lot of mainstream mm. like organizations are like, oh, what's wrong with that? You know, or like those are great things. And you know, what they really do. Yeah. Well, it's happening in the US as well. That's why people are saying that. Yeah. And so I mean and and El Salvador, yeah. I mean the the public private partnerships like under the FMLN administrations, the U.S. Embassy basically, mm-hmm. yeah, there's a, the FMLN legislators within the assembly around the public par, pri, public private partnership law, and there was the FMLN was behind that. No, so the 
Mauricio Funes was president when the public-private partnership law was mm -hmm. passed. And so there was pushback from the party, the legislators in the party around it. And there, you, you could, I could share it. In, I don't want to get too much into it, but the Alliance for Prosperity was signed by the countries of Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador, and Mauricio Funes was president at the time. Because, mm -hmm. you know, after the peace accords were signed in 1992, you, you probably know this, there was like a whole wave of like economic restructuring that the U.S. was working with the Salvadoran right to push through. And like mm -hmm. they, they privatized like over 32, over 30 public institutions and all that money benefited them, you know, and their mm -hmm. families sold off the yep. banks to each other. Um, sold off the electricity companies to, you know, uh, electricity companies to each other, mm -hmm. et cetera. And, and there was push, like, mm -hmm. by the time we get to like the 2000s, there's pushback to these things. People know what privatization means, right? And that's why there mm -hmm. is mass mobilizing against the privatization of water and the privatization of the healthcare system. In the early 2000s, there was mass mobilizing against that and against CASTA mm -hmm. as well. That was a global movement. And so, the public-private partnerships thing and the Alliance for Prosperity thing is something that gets imposed mm. when the FMLN comes to power as well, or not com well, comes into the executive because they don't they don't control the you know their their power is very limited. So when they come to the executive, um, they the U.S. says we're the U.S. embassy says we're not going to give you the Millennium Challenge Corporation money, which was like seven hundred fifty million dollars. El Salvador was like the largest recipient of Millennium Challenge money. And you, in order to receive that money. What is Millennium Challenge money? So the Millennium Challenge Corporation is, was an eight, a corporation that was giving money away to developing quote unquote nations for infrastructure projects. But in order to obtain that money, the countries have to re, like, create laws to promote public-private partnerships. That's what, that, that's what that was all about, was public-private partnerships. And so the, so the Biden plan, the current Biden plan is also all about public-private partnerships. Bukele is all about public-private partnerships as well. And so, you know, when we're talking about Bukele, they, Washington, even though he's fighting with the current heads of state in the US, they, they still have the same economic like ideas in mind, you know, and their relationship to the masses and how their policies will impact the masses are the same, right? Yeah, I think like Bukele and Trump operate very similarly in that they have this large mass following that kind of exclusively gets their information from their social medias. And there's kind of this cult of personality that has developed and I mean, both presidents have just displayed an immense amount of corruption and, you know, around Trump, just so many questions about his own financial gain from the presidency, you know, the extent to which his like extended business dealings were benefited from mm -hmm. his, his time as president. And um, like I think Bukele with Bitcoin, the serious crisis of privatization in Central America, which is larger than Bukele, like these cities or neighborhoods in in Honduras, the sedes, exactly where there's all there's already oh, like sorry. a precedent for zones where cryptocurrency is is allowed as a form of 
legal tender and Trump and Bukele kind of have this, their goals are privatization as much as possible. You know, like Trump was dismantling or rendering useless, like the EPA, like this kind of like the extended administrative state. And Bukele similarly, I think, wants to take, you know, basic infrastructure of Salvador and continue to privatize it, which as you say, there's actually like a longer history of this. Right. And and it's also very prevalent within the Biden administration's plan and was also very prevalent, obviously, like I was saying, under Obama. And yeah, we can keep going back, especially like under under Reagan. And like, even before the war ended, like, even, yeah, even before the war ended in El Salvador, there was already, um, that was, it's just, you know, the anti-communism and the pro-capitalism thing go hand in hand. And the pro-capitalism thing is about economic restructuring to privilege private corporations and like insert these countries within the global, right, the trans, the global capitalist system um, in ways that that are detrimental to the masses. But but yeah, so when you look at the language from Biden's plan, obviously during his campaign, we got a, an idea about what it would look like. And now during his administration, it's, it's playing out in different ways. And one of them is through, you know, Kamala Harris's role in Central America. And in May, there was this call to action to the private sector to deepen investment in the Northern Triangle. When she announced that, this was like around the time that she went to Guatemala, there were 12 companies um, and orgs, but mostly companies who signed up, including Microsoft, MasterCard, Nestle, um, Duolingo, the World Economic Forum, Chobani. So yeah, and and. So they supposedly answered her call and what was created was this uh, NGO supposedly called the Partnership for Central America and all the board, everybody on the board is a representative from one of these different companies. So they're, you know, that's, they're kind of scheming, I suppose, for like how to carry out the, the economic quote unquote development portion of the Biden administration's plan. And then it's also seen through the U.S., I mean, there was legislation that the White House was promoting the U.S. Citizenship Act that was presented in Congress. And there's a portion of it that is is this plan, right, addressing the root causes of migration. So even during his campaign and after his campaign, these things are being talked about at the same time as like immigrant rights things are being talked about, right? So like the U.S. Citizenship Act is supposed to provide relief for, I think, all 11 million immigrants currently in the country. And obviously, we can only imagine the pitfalls and within that and and like the limitations but it well, is we're just so far away from that i mean with their they can't even <laughs> they can't even pass a clean dream act like they're right they can't pass a dream act without all these clauses about um increasing border militarization you know daca recipients are supposed to be the most sympathetic group of people that even conservatives agree should have a pathway to citizenship so yeah, the, the disparity between Biden's promises on the campaign trail and the administration's actual mm. actions on immigration have just been disappointing. And at this point, you know, he, it's it's mm. Trump. Mm. It's just he's mm. just doing an extension of Trump's immigration policies. And, 
even though I was yelled at for saying that Biden mm. is not that different from Trump on immigration, it's turned out that it's unfortunately true. And I'm sorry yeah. that that upsets people who have some kind of delusional faith in the Democratic Party. But the facts are the facts. And even though it sounds nice that they're going to address root cause yeah. issues of migration, that's actually completely untrue. And it's a perpetuation of the root causes for people fleeing and coming to exactly. coming to the border. Exactly. Exactly. And, you know, we touched on this a little bit earlier, which is about, oh, they say that human rights abuses, I don't know that they say because they say violence and poverty are and their responses to violence and poverty are like bring more corporations to make more profit. And it's all about like trickle down economics. But we know that that's going to destroy the environment, you know, and like cause more poverty. We just we know that from history. And and then the violence, how to address violence. It's all about punitive policing and further exporting the prison industrial complex to El Salvador and like, you know, punitive policing to El Salvador, which El Salvador, I think, has the second highest rate in the world of prisoners to the United States. So they've already wow. deeply fucked, wow. excuse my language, but they've spent hundreds of millions, if not billions, since the war in the region to supposedly, quote unquote, fix it. We need to understand what that means better, you know? And so there's a claim also that the plan is intended to combat corruption and again, like I also encourage folks to be critical of this anti-corruption rhetoric because it's something that I see and it's a big part of it. So like it's being kind of celebrated in some places because they're like, oh, well, they're, they're addressing human rights abuses. They want to address anti-corruption. The disingenuous attempt to distract. And I think also the specific the specificities in each country matter a bit in this sense. El Salvador was making strides when it comes to government transparency and combating corruption. Really? At what point? What, like when Bukele, when he made that commission about transparency and now he's gone back on it? No, 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 no. It's important to know also that these are things that Salvadorans have fought for just you know, the FMLN with whatever, with the limitations that it had was, you know, the first progressive government that the country has had since who the, who knows, centuries. This is, some, you know, something that Salvadorans fought for with their lives and achievements that happened under the FMLN were, so it was civil society that was pushing for um, the, the transparency law that was passed under the FMLN. So I'm not here to say that they were like some miraculous mm -hmm. party when they were in the executive because they were very limited anyways in what they could do, you know, but when the social movements pushed them. And they've devolved a lot and they're, I mean, very similar in their corruption and they meet with organized crime as well and like negotiate with them yeah i mean I, I as any other political party does and so you know i don't know if we can call that progressive so yeah let me just share i think so let me just share kind of some of the things some of the advancements that were being made whether we can because what i'm what i was saying too is right these are achievements from salvadorans that were pushing for these things. So they are pushing for a government transparency law, which was passed under the FMLN when they were in the executive. Um, and it basically ensured that every government institution had a dedicated office 
to responding to requests for access to public information. Um, there was also a transparency secretariat within the executive of the FMLN that um, Bukele did away with. And Bukele also did away with all those offices responding to requests for access to public information during the pandemic with the excuse of COVID. And there was also an Institute for Access to Public Information that was established um, that Bukele has also destroyed. And so CCS is actually a um, institution that Bukele came in saying he was going to institute. And this was when he was very friendly with the previous ambassador, Jean Mainz, and kind of like, you know, friends with the U.S. at that time still. And so he was like, yeah, I'm going to do what you guys want me to do. So the CCS is actually a U.S. imposition. So I think that's also important to, to know and understand. And they uh, during the pandemic they did there was a major investigation that, that they were pushing which was into the into Bukele's uh, minister of health ministry of health and the shady things that were going on with the ministry of health that was like a, a big thing that they were pushing and that's why he's not supporting it anymore that's why he basically has dismantled it you know and so the u.s is not happy that you know their their transparency transparency institute is is being it's not being allowed to function anymore, you know? And if we can understand that the U.S. is not going to fix the corruption problem, then we should also question their solutions to it, right? And like, are these things genuine or is there, or are they disingenuous? Well, yeah, I mean, it's just more interventionism, actually. Like it's, it's being like framed as this way of um, separating the two countries, you know, stopping this flow of people coming to the U.S., but it's really just a continuation of U.S. interventionism, which has always, as you said, been super pro-capitalist, like to the point of extreme, extreme inequality. And that is why, as you're, as you're saying, like this, the Biden plan is, it's, um, the, it is very Cold War-esque in the sense that it's, it's still this narrative of capitalism versus yeah. alleged communism or socialism yeah so i think that more than it those are more than anything the critiques of the plan and CSPIS has been you know raising these concerns we've been hosting ed nights amongst ourselves and also in the public the la chapter is hosting one this weekend i know i it's probably this is probably gonna air after it happens but there might be other ones coming up from the different chapters as well and and really actually I don't want to keep getting into other tangents, but the the current campaign is you can kind of find it through the hashtag of no no more harmful aid to Central America. The things that CSPES is calling for, I mean, and I, as I was saying, it's not just CSPES that is calling these things into question. There's other there's legislation too, like the Berta Casares Human Rights Act, the like Honduras the Honduras Human yeah. Rights and Anti Corruption Legislation. Also, and these are like legislation that's like specific to Honduras. There's also the Guatemala Solidarity Project that's also encouraging its network to contact Congress and to call for no more, you know, development, quote unquote, aid to extractivist projects. And, and they're always raising awareness of the attacks that land defenders um, and human rights defenders are facing in, in, in Guatemala. And so this CSPES current campaign is is in collaboration with all these efforts as well and with a lot of the groups that are pushing for these things as well. And and what we've been 
asking our, our networks, our chapters to do is to contact Congress. Like, and of course, there's so many other things that as a diaspora we need to do in order to shift our the public's understanding and push back against the stuff. But you know, Congress holds the purse strings too. So we've been working within the appropriations process to get language incorporated so that no funds go to foreign military financing, international military education and training, international narcotics control and law enforcement and cutting funds through the Pentagon as well to Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador. And then also language suggestions related to development aid. So no financing for infrastructure or energy projects that contribute to an environmental damage, violate labor laws, disregard community land rights, including ancestral indigenous land rights that are opposed by local res residents and or that increased private sector participation in the delivery of essential public services like water, electricity, education, and healthcare, and then no aid to incentivize private public partnership initiatives. Um, so we've been pushing for that, and and right now it's kind of in the Senate's ball court. I was, was that how you say it, anyways? Um, the House, the House has published their version of the bills. And some of the language that we've been proposing did make it in, particularly around like the uh, infrastructure and energy projects that contribute to environmental damage. This thing that we still have to work for if we wanted to continue on this path of pushing Congress is getting them to understand that these private public partnerships are a problem, right? And that incentivizing private sector par participation in essential public services is the problem yeah. and that's a kind of a nerve that's difficult to <laughs> to get around that's kind of the campaign that CISPAS has been pushing and you know the regarding the economic development aid there were over 130 organizations from the U.S. and Central America including um, organizations like COPIN and OFRANE in Honduras that signed on to this letter saying we the U.S. needs to stop financing these things. But of course, you know, if, if the Biden administration and if elected officials were really yeah. interested, you know, in, in addressing root causes of migration, they would listen to what people on the ground are saying. I, I think that that bill that you, the bill language that you talked about is really important because that is actually kind of getting at addressing the root causes of migration, getting to the root causes of displacement. And like the first step of that really is getting the U.S. out of the Salvadoran economy and uh, disincentivizing and prohibiting these private public partnerships for essential services that should ostensibly be led, uh, be left to the government to provide, you know, it's like a governmental obligation to provide these essential services to the citizenry. I think that's really important and the actual way to address the root causes of migration and displacement. Yeah, I mean, and I think also this question of like, how to address the root causes of migration, you said it, you know, it's, it's, the U.S. needs to stop imposing its economic model on the region. Yeah, well, it's it's also made the Salvadoran economy completely dependent on the U.S. as well. I mean, you were just that's you were just outlining that with the increased cost of living. The reason for that is that you know things like CAFTA have essentially gotten rid of subsistence farming, subsistence living, and that mm -hmm. that. Uh, destabilization of the economy then requires people to import goods, to import foods, 
and continues the the relationship that has always existed between you know ever ever since the colonialism the start of colonialism which is that the U.S. extracts the raw resources that it needs from El Salvador in order for its own you know enterprises and then also benefits in that it makes Salvadorians dependent on their economy and there's a reason why like so much of the diaspora is in the United States right like that that's kind of the most ironic thing or that the most irritating thing about the this discussion about immigration and about the Central American wave of migrants and it's like that we we are here because you were there that is it yeah and yeah and it's been going on for so long you know like yeah since the founding of the nation since colonialism yeah, and and also at, at, with regards to mass displacement of let's talk about Salvadorans specifically, obviously because this is you know what I can most easily speak to during the war. They say that the numbers of Salvadorans that came to the U.S. in those ten years of the war was around a, mil- a half a million to the U.S. and then half a million to other to other parts of the world. But now there's like two million Salvadorans, which means that since the war there's been like 1.5 million Salvadorans that have left. And and a lot of that was during the first 20 years, also since since the end of the war and this the economic restructuring that happened in the years since the end of the war. And I think it's really actually really important for us as Salvadoran diaspora to understand years since the end of the war and how there was just tr- like trillions of dollars that were that were pocketed by the elite and the oligarchs and they further entrenched themselves into power you know i'm not one to like i you know i i don't want to be in a position of like defending the the fmln from things that people are rightfully upset or hurt and disappointed in them about but i think that it is you know despite their limitations and shortcomings they provide it provided a space for the demands of the masses to be pushed for and have a chance and at, in every step of the way whenever there was attempts at progressive policy the US embassy stepped in against it and i think that's also important to pay attention to and learn about and so you know when it comes to things like basic grain production within the years of the FMLN, there were changes that were made that shifted that. So instead of importing the the mass majority of like basic grains, that shifted into them being produced within the country. There was the, the FMLN attempted taxing corporations and the U.S. Embassy through the court system, because actually and again, this is kind of getting more into the weeds of U.S. interventionism under the FMLN and the way that the U.S. Embassy intentionally undermined any progressive policy that that tried to happen. And what they did was they they used, you know, the right wing and the oligarchs control of the justice system. And so the the constitutional chamber of the Supreme Court under the FMLN became activated. And they started saying, no, you can't implement this tax reform because it's unconstitutional, for example, Um, or you can't privilege local seed producers because it's unconstitutional or or the U.S. Embassy would threaten under CAFTA, for example. And so I think it's important to, to kind of know that the U.S. consistently pushes back against any achievements towards 
progressive policy as minor as they might be or on they weren't enough obviously because people are still desperate so much so that they that they mm-hmm. chose a savior who is a fascist well i think Bukele just took advantage of the fact that people are so fed up with both fmla and Ener arena and that having been the dominant mm-hmm. political binary for a very long time and this is whole like nuevas ideas branding and it's important to point out that he he does have actually right. kind of traditionally authoritarian tendencies like you wanted to you wanted to talk about his political pers- the political persecution that he's engaging mm-hmm. in so you want to talk about that now yeah so i think we can talk about that as well i think one of the the things that he used too was like he he right wing strategy and the right wing strategy of destabilizing the fmln backfired on them actually you know so there's a lot of examples of this but but yeah their their strategy was to paint the fmln as corrupt as them and i think that it's important for us to know that they even though there were limitations and they're not perfect and they disappointed the people in ways um i think it's dangerous to say that they're the same because that is that's not accurate you know there were differences and bukele used that to come to power and then also the question of dependency i, I had notes on this too that i just wanted to share the the dependency question is an interesting one too in the sense that we think of you know salvadoran people on the salvadoran state being dependent on us policy or the us economy and another way to look at it of course is that the us is dependent on our communities on our exploited labor and on the exploitation of uh, natural resources and the extraction of that you know and one example too to to think about is the number of deportees that are working at call centers And so I look at like mm-hmm. Duolingo being promoted and Microsoft being What? promoted and like really? what are all Duolingo. these things for, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's taking yeah. advantage that's so sick because it's taking advantage of deportees' time and experience in the US and knowledge of English. Right. I mean and that's a major thing and and yeah, I can't I can only imagine like what other kinds of like industry they might be planning i don't know like it support i don't know who knows what else but but yeah duolingo and microsoft are both corporations that are part of that like partnership for growth ngo as well as nestle which is like recently just won a lawsuit in the supreme court when they were being sued for using slave labor or child child labor specifically yeah oh for child labor i'm sorry yeah i just so, i mean it's a, you're correct that they were trafficked but i just need to it wasn't just regular labor trafficking it was literally children children slaves so yeah, yeah. and so we're supposed to like we're supposed to be happy scotus said that it's like well we just can't really do anything about it like sorry because it didn't happen here because it didn't happen in the us right And it's yeah. like we're supposed to be happy that Kamala Harris is bringing these corporations to do business in our homeland and our ancestral homeland like what? Well, but it's like to to do business to exploit. Right. right. Like, oh, job cre- it's like oh, job creation. It's like ah, those jobs are not going to be like good jobs that help people, you know, with a living wage. So it's going to be exploitation. Right. Yeah, and so I think the the question about bukele and of course we know he's dangerous but he is so dangerous he's so extremely dangerous and he's been dangerous and 
the in terms of like the political persecution i don't did you hear about or or catch the mass shooting that happened in the in the few weeks before the election before the legislative election that happened earlier this year yeah i saw that that was something that you had wanted to discuss in, okay so- in your notes yeah yeah, so I mean, it's it's just one example of many. Um, it's just one example of many. Um, but there is a, a, you know, he's political, he's persecuting his um, opposition, gen- like in general. And one of the things that he uses is, is his troll army. And so there's a lot of like online harassment that has happened. And that has kind of drummed up this like violent hatred <laughs> towards anyone that disagrees with, um, with Bukele. But I would argue, and, and what we've noticed is that actually it's pointed, it's actually very pointed, and the impacts of it um, fall much harder on the left. And, you know, in addition to like, of course, the, 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 the persecution of journalists is also extremely alarming. And so what happened in January was there was a mass shooting that was carried out by government employees, Bukele government employees, by special police officer who was part of the national civilian police and security and drivers of the health minister and they carried out a mass shooting against fmln activists that were leaving a campaign rally and two of them were killed and instead of denouncing what happened instead of denouncing what you know the government employees carried out and bukele and the national civilian police began to try to justify what happened you know, and paint a whole nother picture saying that there was a crossfire, but there's mm-hmm. video of what happened. <laughs> and so it's it's really intense. And, and this is something that came about after a whole drumming up of online harassment and hatred, just vile, vile things that happen online against anybody that opposes him, but especially the left. After the election, there was also a lot of sexual harassment and abuse that some of the FMLN mujeres were facing, which he also, instead of denouncing, started also attacking. Bukele on his Twitter also started attacking these, these mujeres. I mean, and the things that, this, that these people were saying were horrible. Well, yeah, Bukele has long been a misogynist. I mean, he was a part of the FMLN until the women of FMLN kicked him out because he threw an apple at a woman and like said misogynistic things at her. Right. Yeah. And, but, and, and it's just so dangerous, you know, like I said, it's been, it's led to, it's, it's been deadly. And, and the things that were being said about these mujeres online were like, I'm not going to repeat them, but everybody saw them and they were, it was extreme harassment. Um, The guy ended up in jail and he's somebody who got permits to be in that place by the government themselves by government news a government news channel you know and he's part of a online blog network which probably runs troll farms too you know so it's like part of their their whole ammo and the way they function and um and now they control the legislative assembly right and they've carried out a coup illegally replacing mm-hmm. the supreme court magistrates and the attorney general and so it's this justice system which is now persecuting former FMLN government officials on charges that are bogus. So it's it's really dangerous what's happening. And so CISPUS has been also raising alarms 
about that and doing some some advocacy around that because there's currently political prisoners in El Salvador. I mean, it doesn't make any sense to put any faith in an attorney general and a justice system coming from the Bukele administration who who is proven who's just corrupt, completely corrupt. And and yeah, the other thing that they're doing is they are coming after NGOs that do work, you know, that threatens their profits, basically, or that might fight for civil liberties and for democracy that are aligned, like that are historic leftist organizations like Las, Mel Las Melidas and Fundespad, which doesn't even exist anymore. But the, the Legislative Assembly, the Nuevas Ideas Controlled Legislative Assembly, because they have a super majority, so they literally can do whatever they want without any discussion. They have this commission where they're hosting hearings and investigating supposedly NGOs. And so they're going after organized Salvadorans is what's happening, right? And it's really dangerous. It's I mean, that's attacking civil society. I mean, NGOs are... That's still, you know, it's like the civil society that's meant to keep government in check. That's another balance yeah. uh, check to government. And so it's kind of an extension of his authoritarian move. He's taken over. the He has the legislative assembly in his pocket. He has the Supreme Court after he replaced the judges that weren't going to let him mm -hmm. enact his policies. And, you know, now he's also attacking civil society. So it's people should be very alarmed of the ways in which he's increasing his yes. power. Yes. Absolutely. So those are all the questions that I had. Was there anything that we didn't get to touch on that you you didn't want to talk about? No, I, I don't think so. I think just encourage encourage us to make our voices heard as diaspora about about everything, but like particularly about the Biden administration policy. Learn more about it, and, and you know, like I said earlier, it's currently Congress that holds the purse strings about where this money can be spent. And we know there's like limitations to um, this bureaucratic system um, and this colonial system. But I, I do think that we should be pushing back against it. And so I really encourage folks to check out, again, that hashtag, um, no, har no harmful aid to Central America. They should also you can go to cspes.org for the information. It's hashtag and harmful aid to Central America. So yeah, so the CSPES Instagram handle is CSPES underscore solidarity. You can follow the hashtag and harmful aid to Central America to get information about that campaign and also find ways to take action. And then we have, um, if you go to cspes.org forward slash take action, that takes you to a page where you can automatically email your senator. There's an email script. There's the phone script. There's also like sample tweets that you can tweet at your senators and at the appropriations committee. Because right now it's like I said, it's on the, in the Senate side to get some of this language in. And yeah, just really encourage folks to make your make our voices heard. Yeah, it's death, but it's super important. Well. Yes, yes, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast and discussing Central American politics and CISPA's work. I really appreciate it. And I hope you have a great rest of your day and hope you can come back on the podcast again thank soon. Thank you, Yvette. Thank you. Of course, thank you for having me. Bye. <laughs> Bye.